Good morning, friends. It's good to see you. Um, children five and under have somewhere to go in the garden, right? So if your kids or if you have kids around you that are five and under, we encourage you, invite them to go and join the kids in the garden. Uh, the kids who are older than that, you get to stay with us. So I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. And allow me to pray for us as we continue. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again. If you're visiting us, I just wanted to offer another warm welcome to you. So, you see things on the screen. So when I glanced at this passage, that are our passage for today from John 5, it struck me at the time that the most apt title for my sermon should be The Wizard, The Jedi, and The Mandalorian. And I thought at the time that I had pretty good reason for that title. For starters, the scene of our story in John 5 places us at the Pool of Bethesda, just north of the Temple Mount, and you can see that map there to get a sense of things. Now, archaeologists suggest that it was originally a mikveh, which is to say a pool that was used for ritual purification around Jesus' time. Now, later, under the second century Roman emperor Hadrian, it was dedicated to Asclepius, who was the Roman god of healing. But in the context of John's story here in chapter 5, the pool is a place where seemingly fantastical things happen. When the waters are stirred, so we're told, the first person to jump into the center of the pool gets healed. Now, this statement strikes me as preposterous as clicking your heels three times, saying there's no place like home, and then you're home. But here's what's equally crazy to me. The narrator of our story feels no need to place an asterisk upon the invalid statement. A natural explanation, of course, may exist for the weird powers of the waters, but St. John isn't, in fact, interested in explaining it away. And while biblical commentators either remain agnostic on the matter or fret over its possible superstitious features, the narrator of our story allows its supernatural qualities to stand. And I think it's worth noting. Now, later in the story, when the invalid is questioned by the religious authorities, the identity of Jesus at the moment remains a mystery to the nameless man because, well, kind of like the Jedi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, in Star Wars, Jesus slips away unnoticed, happy for the moment to remain anonymous. He's the miracle worker hiding in plain sight. Or as Mark's gospel might put it, he's the Messiah who keeps his true identity a secret for the time being. Now, a few verses later, Jesus finds the man in the temple and warns him not to sin anymore. And soon after, the invalid finds himself again in the presence of the Jewish leaders, and he tells them that it was Jesus who had commanded him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. And when the Jews learned this, they began to harass Jesus. In his defense, Jesus answers in verse 17, 
My father is still at work, and so am I. Now, to my mind, that sounds a little bit like something that the Mandalorian would say, that Spartan warrior figure in the Star Wars universe who lives by this common creed called the Way of the Mandalore. So if you've not seen the show, not a problem. But this is what happens all the time. When anyone asks why the Mandalorian does what he does to rescue people or to protect them, he simply says, Blake, this is the way. Okay, if you've seen the show, what does he say? This is the way. <laughs> well done. So why does Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Because this is what the Father would do. Why does Jesus command the invalid to carry his mat? Because this is what the Father would command. And why does Jesus claim to have life-giving powers? Because this is what the Father would claim for himself. This is the way. Now, you're thinking to yourself, isn't it more accurate to say that God rests on the Sabbath? Well, the answer is yes and no. He rested, yes, in the sense that he took active delight in what he had made. But no. So the Jewish scholars of Jesus' day, like the first century Jewish philosopher Philo, argued that God did not, in fact, rest on the Sabbath because God never ceases making. It's what God does. If God did not cease making, creation would revert to chaos. Now, Philo also argues that it is only God who can work in a restful fashion, which is to say, without toil or suffering. And this is the prerogative that Jesus claims for himself, the prerogative to work on the Sabbath in order to preserve it in life and to guard it against death. He's simply doing what the Father is already doing himself. And this is the reason why the Jewish leaders not only begin to harass Jesus, but also to seek to kill him to kill him, because Jesus is here making himself equal, on par with God the Father. This is the way. So what then can we say about this Jesus whom we encounter at the start of chapter 5? Well, at the very least, I think we can say that God's world is far more fantastical than we may often allow. When the waters stir by God only knows what power, People get healed. Call it a thin space, as the Celts might put it. Call it enchanted. Call it what you will. But here, Jesus is presented as the sovereign of the magical powers of the water. So what he offers to the Samaritan woman in John 4, he in fact makes available to the invalid in John 5, living waters capable of reversing the entropic effects of sin and death in the world. But I think it's also clear from this passage that Jesus refuses the temptation of Matthew 4, the temptation that Satan presents to him in that particular passage in Matthew. He refuses, that is, to make a spectacle of himself so that people will love him, not for who he claims to be, but for his ability to dazzle them with mighty deeds and to entertain them with signs and wonders. As Aaron preached in her sermon last week, what the people want is a giant gumball machine God who will dispense miracles, 
but who will demand nothing of them in return. And Jesus refuses to play that game because he knows that it will only allow them to keep God at a greater distance rather than enabling God to draw closer. Now, he also refuses, I think, he refuses this temptation because he is so single-mindedly committed to his father's work. His father's work is to restore to life those who least expect a visitation of God in their lives, who least expect it. It's the nobodies of the world that Jesus encounters throughout this gospel. It's the wretched. It's the puzzled. It's the abandoned. It is to make available living waters to those who feel so ashamed of themselves that they visit the well at noon in order to avoid all contact with people who would only serve to remind them how very much alone they are in the world. And it is to be the bread of life to those who have lost their way. Not just in life itself, they've lost their way in themselves and are desperately hungry for something real in the world. Now, in the case of our story today, it is to bring life to one of the most pitiable characters in all of John's gospel, which is why I then decided to change the title of my sermon to this, The Invisible Man and the Visible God. The Invisible Man. The protagonist of our story has no name, he has no friends, and he has the worst luck in the world. He's been lying around the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, waiting to claw his way into the waters. So let me pause. 38 years. Think about it. I don't know how old most of you are, so I'll just choose myself. I'm 51, and if my math is correct, that means I became an invalid at 13. Now, at 13 years old, I am at the Pool of Bethesda waiting day after day after week after week after month after year. And finally, at age 51, somebody shows up. Think about how depressing and cruel it has felt to watch all these other people get well, but for you, there is only trying and always only failing. Then Jesus shows up. He shows up on the scene and does the one thing that nobody has ever done in this man's life. He sees the invisible man. He sees and inquires after him. He sees and he does something. And this is a point that Mother Sarah has made in her own sermons previously. In John chapter 1, Jesus sees Nathanael. In John 9, Jesus sees the man born blind. In John 11, Jesus sees Mary weeping. In John 19, Jesus sees his mother grieving. He sees all these people not passively or indifferently, but in love, which is to say he sees them as a way of saying, I'm here. I am with you. I am for you. I know your heartache, and it matters to me. Our family has been watching the Avatar movies recently, and the way that the indigenous people of Pandora, the Navi, greet each other caught my attention. 
When they encounter one another, they gesture with their hand or their fingers to their forehead, and they marry this gesture with the phrase, I see you. I see you. Now, to the Navi, this not only represents a literal perception of another person in physical proximity, but also a way of dignifying the personhood of another. And one of the dramatic plot lines of the second movie, The Way of the Water, revolves around the tension between a father and a teenage son, a son who does not feel seen by his father. At worst, he feels seen as a perpetual disappointment. At best, he feels seen only as the shadow of his elder, more competent brother. And this experience of feeling unseen leads him to do a lot of dumb stuff. And I imagine each of us in this room has felt, or honestly feels even now, unseen in some fashion. You may feel unseen in your family, your extended family. You may feel unseen in your marriage. You may feel unseen at your place of work or at school. Or dare I say, you may feel unseen even in this room. But Jesus is the one who sees. He sees you and he sees me. And as with the invisible man of this story, Jesus not only sees, but he finds you. He goes out of his way to look for you. He will hunt you down and look for you and will not give up until you are found and until you felt found and seen. And in seeing and finding and healing this man, Jesus also makes the character of God more visible, more palpable. To see the Son, Jesus argues repeatedly, is to see God. To see what the Son does is to see what God himself does. For the author of this gospel, this is what Jesus' mission aims to accomplish fundamentally, to show us the true face of the Father. As John 1.18 puts it in the message, no one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse but this one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. Jesus encounters the invisible man in John 5 at the pool of Bethesda, which in Hebrew means the house of mercy and offers to him a mercy that had escaped him his entire life. He meets Nicodemus in John 3 and offers to him a Holy Spirited life that enables him to do impossible things. He visits the Samaritan woman in John 4 and offers to her the kind of water that exceeds her expectations. And in John 2, he turns water into wine in a way that supersedes the laws of nature and defies the customary laws of hospitality. This, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus is on about in John's gospel to restore a world that has been warped by sin, to mend it, to heal it, to breathe new and unimaginably extravagant life into it. And from here on out through chapter 12, we will be encountering Jesus as the God who is not only the life of the world, but who also brings life to the world. And he does so in the most intimate and personal, and often offstage ways. 
But as obvious as these two points may be to our passage, allow me, if you will, to change the title of my sermon one last time. Which is to say, allow me to home in on what I think is the heart of this story. If we look a little bit closer, I think we will discover something about Jesus that might escape our notice if we hurry by too quickly. Jesus is the one here and elsewhere in John's gospel who asks pointed questions of people who find themselves very much alone in the world and very much defined by their traumas. That's my title. In verse 6, Jesus asks the invalid, do you want to get well? And in verse 7, the man responds, sir, I have no one to help me. So one of the things that I wish to encourage us to do as we move through this sermon series in John is to pay close attention to the kinds of questions that Jesus asks because the questions themselves are actually telling you something about the actual nature of God. <clears throat> in John 1, 38, for example, Jesus asked two of John the Baptist's disciples, what do you want? In John 2, 4, he asked his mother, woman, why do you involve me? In John 4, 7, he asked the woman at the well, will you give me a drink? And in John 5, 7, he asked the invalid, do you want to get well? And let me pause here and let us think about this question. He's been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus has the gall to ask him the question, do you want to get well? Do I want to get well? Isn't it obvious? So let's use our imagination, and let's imagine you into this story. And I don't know what your pain is, so let me offer a few options. Maybe you are chronically ill. Maybe your children have walked away from the faith. Maybe your job makes you perpetually miserable, but there is no way out for you. Maybe you're clinically depressed. Maybe you are single and you have been wishing to get married for years. Maybe your marriage is strained and it has been strained at a seeming breaking point. Whatever your pain may be, hear Jesus' question. Do you want to get well? And it sounds kind of hurtful and insulting to be asked this question. Do I want to get well? Of course I want to get well. Don't you see? Which is to say, don't you care? Why would you ask me that question? It's really important, friends, that we reckon with the strangeness of this question because it's the kind of questions that Jesus asks you and me. But perhaps there's a second meaning to this question. Perhaps what Jesus is actually asking is for the man to take a moment and to be brutally honest with himself. Good sir, do you wish for your life to be different from what it has been over the past 38 years. If you do, it will change everything. This pool is familiar to you. It is, as it were, safe. But it will no longer define you if I heal you. And if I heal you, 
It will implicate you in my life. Your lot will be bound up in my lot. And something will be asked of you. You will be asked to trust me. So allow me to ask the question again. Do you want to get well? Well, maybe if I'm perfectly honest with myself, I don't want to get well. Maybe the pain of trusting Jesus is greater than the pain that I experience in this place of sorrow and loss in my life. Maybe the surrogates that I have adopted in order to numb the pain, well, they feel kind of okay. Or maybe I'm afraid that if I abandon myself utterly to Jesus, that he will ask something of me I don't think I can bear. When I abandoned my faith in college many years ago and found myself struggling with doubt, I, find, I found so many aspects of it very, very painful. But something kind of curious happened to me 18 months into this sojourn in the far country. I found myself becoming oddly addicted to questioning my faith. I could feel Jesus tugging at my heart, but I also felt this fear rising in me that if he asked something of me, I don't know that I could say yes to it. So I found ways to generate new intellectual problems to solve. And I could see how easy it would be to become a professional doubter. The truth is that doubting after a while felt safe. It was familiar. It honestly felt like something I could control. I can control the fact that I can generate new problems to solve. And to trust Jesus fully would require me to become vulnerable again. And I'm not sure that I would really want that. But perhaps for some of us in this room, there's yet another factor at work in your struggle to fully trust Jesus. You actually do want to say yes to the question that he asks of you. But you feel alone. And you feel completely powerless in your isolation. Which brings me to the most human moment in the story. I have no one to help me. Friends, it doesn't get more pitiable and pathetic than this. For 38 years, this man has had No family, no friends, not even a hired servant to drag him into the waters when they stirred magically. The paralytic of Mark 2 at least had four friends to carry him to Jesus. But this unnamed man had nothing. And this experience may describe you here today in some fashion. Maybe you have family But you don't have the kind of family that will hunt you down in order to show you the mercy that you sorely need. Maybe you have friends, and you're sincerely grateful for those friends, but if you're honest with yourself, you don't have the kinds of friends who will willingly inconvenience themselves in order to carry your all-too-inconvenient burdens. Not the kind of friends who will say, I see you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. You can count on me. In John 5, we find a Jesus who is fully at home with the fantastical, but who chooses to meet the invisible man in the mundane circumstances of his life. 
We encounter one who surprises the invalid with an astounding gift of life, but not in a way that makes a spectacle of himself because it is not, hear me carefully, it is not about Jesus alone. It is about the Father. And the work that the Father is on about, which is Jesus' work, and also the Holy Spirit's work, to show mercy to the merciless and to breathe life into lifeless bodies. And what we observe here at the beginning of a new phase in Jesus' ministry in John's gospel, framed as he is by some of the most central features of Israel's life. You have, the, you have Jerusalem, you have the temple, you have Sabbath, you have Torah, is that Jesus squanders his godlike powers on one man only. An invisible man, a desperately hapless and helpless man who for the first time in his life is seen, and not just by anyone, but by the God who sees. So allow me then to suggest to you in conclusion that Jesus, he sees you. So if you remember nothing from my sermon today, and there's a 98% chance that you will forget most of it, think on this. Hold on to this. Jesus sees you today, here, and now as a way to remind you that you are not alone and you are not without help. But allow me to add a postscript. I think this story also includes an invitation to the reader and to you and me many thousands of years later. I think the invitation is this, and here are my notes in. It says dot, dot, dot. I think the invitation is this. The way that we become seen, like seen in, in the way that feels meaningful, that, like, that we feel deep in our heart and our bones, is by one another. That's the way that we feel seen by God. So here's my invitation to you, those of you who are part of our community, those of you who are visiting. Each of you probably wants, in a very real, legitimate way, to feel seen. And that is what I will pray for you in the weeks to come. That is what the staff here at Church of the Cross will pray for you. But allow me to invite you to do something actively. Ask right now, and I'll give you just a moment, ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind one person, maybe in our community, maybe it's outside of our community, but allow the Holy Spirit to bring to mind one person who you sense feels unseen in some fashion. And my invitation is to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice, and you may have a sense of it now, you may have a sense of it in the days to come, to listen, and then in a very gracious, thoughtful, care-filled way, respond. Help this person to feel seen, and I don't know what that is. It may just be a word of encouragement, it may be an action of kindness or of mercy. And that language of mercy has shown up in our songs. It's shown up in our readings. And maybe that is what people need is mercy. But let me take a moment here in silence and invite you to simply say the prayer, Holy Spirit, who is somebody that I know, maybe here or elsewhere, who feels unseen? Bring them to heart, bring them to mind, and grant me the grace to respond, and then I will pray to close us. Let's take a moment of silence.
Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here, you are alive, you are present, and you wish to help each of us feel the gracious presence of Jesus in this place, in this gathering, in what we will continue to do, but also for each of us individually, in our own hearts, in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that there is no one in this room that is too old or too young to be the tangible grace of Jesus to someone else. So I pray, bless my brothers and sisters, those who are a part of this family, those who are not a part of this family, bless and grace them to be your gracious presence to those who need to feel seen in some capacity in the days to come. And we thank you for using us, for using us to to show your kindness and your mercy and to bring hope to those who desperately need it. And we pray these things, trusting that you go before us to do far more than we could ask or imagine. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.